my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. I'm very much looking forward to my talk today with Swedish consultant and educator, Anna Adenergy, with a PhD in gender studies from Linköping University. Pretty sure I didn't say that correctly in Swedish. Anna's work combines critical race and intersectionality studies and its usage in creating ethnic and racial diversity within society and the arts. Welcome, Anna. <laughs> thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, thank you so much for coming on here. I'm, as I said, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. I'm not sure what we're going to talk about. I mean, I've heard your previous podcasts, so I look forward to this. <laughs> cool. Well, let's just start off with asking, how are you? Well, I'm fine. When I go from work to vacation, I'm not in vacation mode yet, but I'm always a bit anxious because I want to have a really nice vacation. And then I'm like, you know, I don't know how it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand that. Do you have your own company? Yes, I do. Wow, so you're the boss. Uh, it's tricky sometimes because I have to both get myself to work and get myself to rest. Um, um, but I do like to have my own company. I've had it two years. How's the weather where you're at? It's hot. Is it? Yeah. In Sweden, could you imagine? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It's really nice. Yeah. Every time I hear Sweden, I go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the summers here are really good. So I was fortunate I was there last summer, so I got to see a little bit of it. And speaking of, how was your midsummer? It was good. I spent it with my sister and her husband and daughter and her husband's family. I haven't seen them for a long time. And it was also my niece's eighth birthday. So that was the best of the day, actually. <laughs> uh-huh. We took a bath in a outside sauna or outside bathtub, and then they had a sauna right next to it. So it was nice. Can you explain a little bit to us what midsummer is in Sweden? I'm not that traditional about midsummers, but it's in the middle of the summer. And the traditional way is people gather often on the countryside. And we've raised this weird midsummer pole, which is very much a phallus symbol. There has been quite interesting attempts to do other midsummer things that's not so much a phallus which I appreciate, but the tradition is that. And you put a lot of flowers on this one and you dance around it and sing. And then you eat a lot of seal, herring, these pickled herrings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people also drink a lot of schnapps. It's one of these family gatherings or friends gatherings, depending on how you define your family. I actually don't like midsummers. Eve that much. I don't know. I've had some pretty intense experiences when I was younger. Like you go out on the countryside, everyone's 
really psyched to have super fun. And then something always happens <laughs> that you cannot get out of there. Huh. So for quite a lot of years, I've gone to Greece instead the day before midsummers. Now I haven't been able to do that this year or last year because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I tend to just go away to a small island instead of doing this big tradition. Yeah, the way you describe it, it makes me think of uh, New Year's Eve. Yeah, but in the summertime and also the summers here at this time, I mean, the sun doesn't go down, right? So people party all night. Of course, there's this really romantic shimmer around it, but I would say people get drunk, mostly. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of babies are born nine months after uh, midsummer. Yeah. Well, that's kind of convenient for things like daycare and that type of thing. Yeah, it is. Because of the pandemic, I saw a little bit of it last year, but I felt like it didn't really capture what little I knew about it at that time. Because I live in a suburb to Stockholm with a lot of nationalities living here. The midsummer's traditions here are really nice because then people come from all over the world and just have fun with the traditions without it being something that you have to do. You dance these really silly dances around the pole and you laugh a lot and it's nice Uh, sounds like fourth of july in the states could imagine yes it's like it's coming up on that and this will be the second year that i've missed it but i don't miss it because of the complicated relationship with that holiday and being a black american so anyway oh yeah i mean that's obviously also the thing for me when i've been on these traditional countryside things, it's extremely white. I remember my sister and I went out to look at a boat because it was really beautiful. And she wanted to show me an old boat that's just lying there. And a woman came up to us and asked us who we were and what we were doing there. We were the only black people on the island at the time. So it was like, yeah, I don't know if I need that. And this was recently. Yeah, this was this midsummer. And the reaction of trying to explain why you're there. And my sister's like, well, I'm married to this one. And he's a brother to that one who lives over there. So we're allowed. Yeah. But still, I don't think she would have asked anyone else. But I don't know. Maybe she would have. Yeah, that's always that, uh, for me, that dance in my head of, okay, it could be curiosity because I don't look familiar. Mm-hmm. However, I have enough data exactly. <laughs> from my life experience to say, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> and I think that's the stress of it. The everyday stress of thinking, what if? Is this because I'm Black or is it something else? Is she just rude anyway? Well, that kind of ties into, again, I said earlier that I'm really excited to talk with you today because of what you do and also to hear more about your life experiences. But how did you get into what you're doing now professionally? I'm a trained academic and researcher in gender studies. I started off taking anthropology at university and I was really frustrated about this 
colonial perspective of it all, even though I didn't have the words for it at the time. But all these white men studying interesting people in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking that I want to use the tools of anthropology to understand my own culture and my own, uh, also my own perspective of Sweden. Because I'm born and raised here, but my father is Nigerian. And uh, my older brother and sister, we all lived in Nigeria when we were kids, but I was so young, so I don't remember much. I was only two when we moved back here. But when I grew up, they had a different perspective than I had because they remembered living in Nigeria and they remember being immigrants. Even though our mother is Swedish, they spoke with an accent. They knew Swedish, but they were more familiar with English. So I remembered that I really wanted to use those tools to understand Swedishness and whiteness. But then it was too tough for me, I think. So I went into the direction of gender studies instead. So I was into studies of gender and sexuality for a long time. And then I sort of circled back into critical race theory, both because of what happens in the world, but also because people assumed that I knew critical race studies because I'm Black, Black in, in academia. Yeah, yeah. So I realized I needed to read up and learn. Then I wanted to leave academia because it was not healthy for me in many ways. It was never good enough. And I think a lot of people in academia feel like that. For some people, that's a carrot just to do better. But for me, I was just broken down by it. Mm -hmm. And I had a research project on an organization in Sweden called Hyresgästföreningen. It's the National Association for Tenants. And it's been around for like 100 years. And they had a project on diversity and representation within their organization. So I did research for them for three years. And I realized that I do have a lot of knowledge about these things. It's not just that people assume, of course, doing research on it is a good way to learn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I realized I could do some use uh, out in the world and in organizations to help. I mean, in Sweden, you have to start with why is it important to work on anti-racism? Most people say that they're anti-racists, or at least they say they're not racists. And by that, they mean, so I don't have to work with it. I don't have to do anything because it's like my identity that's not racist. <laughs> you have to sort of start with, but... It's not just a feeling, it's something you actually have to do. It's something you have to change in your organization or in society or your own behaviors. This idea that if you feel anti-racist, you don't have to do anything. That's a good point. Yeah, so I, I realized that I had to help organizations and management to realize how to start and how to sort of actually be the ones who not just initiate anti-racist processes in the organizations, but also to push it forward. Because what I see is that a lot of 
non-white people, uh, not just black, but different colors, they're pushing it and they are pushing it to the extent that they're burnt out or they change jobs or they get on sick leave because they cannot be there anymore. Yeah, so that's where I am now. But I think also, because I know that I also have white privilege in the the sense that my mother is white, I was brought up around a lot of white people and I know Swedishness from the core. I actually have the energy. I will not always have that energy, but still I have the energy to talk to white management, white colleagues that try to understand but don't know what to do and all of that. Because I have a lot of friends who have given up. They don't want to do it anymore. Sounds like it's needed, just like it is all over the world. I'm not a resident as of yet in Sweden. Of course, I've been there, but I've been asked by people in the States, how is it for Black people? And I said, I don't know if I can really answer that because I'm coming from an American filter, first of all, Mm -hmm. and I didn't grow up there. So there's some things I'm not going to see, or there's some things that I'm going to assume based on growing up in the States you know, don't take what I share and say, this is how it is for people who are not, you know, ethically Swedish. What you can say is, how is it for you as a Black American man? And that is interesting. Also, I would say that now for the last maybe 10 years, there's a much stronger identity of being Afro-Swedish or African-Swedish. But when I grew up, there was not at all. I mean, there were like nationally identified groups, like you could be a Nigerian or Gambian or Ethiopian. For all of us mixed race kids that grew up here, it was quite recently that we sort of started to understand what we were. There's this discourse that this ties to this thing that I talked about earlier. People say, well, I'm not racist because I don't see color. (laughs) Right? This is so deep in the Swedish discourse. So for all of us that were like, oh, maybe you don't see color, but I'm still treated differently. So someone here is definitely seeing color. We haven't even had a language to speak about it. So Mm. what we did in my generation, and I think... That goes for earlier and maybe later too, is that we look to Black America. That's how I learned how to express what I was because I didn't have my own language for it. So all the Black American culture, also politics, history, I know a lot more about that than I know about Nigeria, for instance. Oh, okay. I think the ties between Sweden and the U.S. is very strong culturally. We have a lot of American culture in Sweden, as you might have noticed. <laughs> I have noticed it. I was surprised the first time I visited with how many people spoke English. And I assumed that Swedes would speak with more of an English accent. And to my ear, it sounds more American. Yeah, that's because of TV and films and music. You've given a lot of information. And when you were talking, one of the things I thought about was when you shared about what your sister and you experienced with the woman, 
that's somebody, in my opinion, that I could see very easily say, oh, I'm not racist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm just curious because I've had those similar experiences, too. And it's like, yeah, I think you need to unpack that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it sounds like that's what you're doing with your work. This is one difference for you and me, because you come in from a seat from the outside and more and more from the inside since you've been here a lot. But for me, hmm, I'm always thinking, should I speak? Because if I speak, they hear that I speak Swedish and that might confuse them. If I don't say anything, no one is winning really, but I can just walk out of there to let them wonder. If I start to speak in Swedish, so they know that I'm Swedish and I know what they're doing. I can see through their shit. At the same time, I feel like I am defending myself. Like I am Swedish, so I'm allowed to be here, but I should be allowed to be there anyway. I should be allowed to be there even if I didn't speak Swedish or grew up here. That was something I struggled with quite a lot. It was important for me to say that I was not an immigrant. And then I realized, why is this important for me? And I felt so bad because it's like, if I'm constantly saying, well, I'm not an immigrant, then I'm sort of pushing it away. Like that should be a problem. That shouldn't be a problem. Right. I always have these conversations in my head. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, based on my own experience, understand a little bit what you're sharing. There's still, I think that in the U.S., I think the history of the country, because we were always pushed to the side, we were forced to create cultures and communities. But I know for me, I have those thought processes too. And it wasn't until I really started leaving the U.S. regularly that for the first time I thought of myself as American. Mm -hmm. And the writer James Baldwin talked about that when he first lived in France back in the 40s that he didn't realize he was American until he left because in the States, it's that same thing of, oh, I'm Black. I don't think of myself consciously always as American, Mm. even though I am. And I, you know, have a long history in that country, my genealogy. So yeah, I I think I understand a little bit of that. And even that, you know, you still can get people in America that will ask you where you're from, you know, even though there's a culture and there's all this stuff that's uniquely American, you can still get asked that question. Yeah. But also, I mean, I have friends that grew up in African countries that was like, yeah, it was when I came to Sweden that I became Black. Uh, Because what's the use of calling yourself Black if everyone around you is Black? You don't have to sort of relate to whiteness all the time. And then (laughs) you come to Sweden and people are touching your skin and your hair and asking you strange things. Yeah. So that's also a thing of your identity is sort of shifting depending on who you related to. And maybe that's been as being mixed race, Swedish, Black. I think that has been, uh, it's not a problem, but it's something, uh, well, at least problematic. Who am I supposed to relate to? Also, since I didn't grow up with my father, who is the one who made me Black. (laughs) I haven't had a relationship with him. I know him, I can talk to him, but I didn't for many, many years of my life. So yeah, that was also strange because I wanted to be proud of my Blackness, but still the part of me that was Black was not there. 
That's a good thing to bring up. It's a question mark I've had as myself traveling in Europe. I know they see me as black, but I never know exactly what they see beyond that. But for yourself, they can identify you as quote unquote black, but do they go beyond that and do they break it down in that way? Not white Swedish people, no. Okay. No, they <laughs> never. Of yeah. course, when I meet other black people, they can ask or see or see my name. If they see my name, a lot of people know that it's Nigerian. But Swedish people, Swedish white people know. But I definitely have the experience of when I've traveled in different parts of the world in Europe that people guess a lot. Usually I'm read as American. Yeah, I've heard many things. Many, many, many things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny you bring that up because we know each other, you and I. And I had someone ask me once, oh, Anna's American. And I was like, no, she's Swedish. And I'm like, no, she's American. Can't you hear in her voice? I was like, Swedes have amazing English, but Americans wouldn't mistake you. Black Americans wouldn't mistake you for being Black American. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, the different filters that we get put on us by society or by upbringing. Yes. That kind of blind us to really seeing the person. I was, uh, I think, 35 when I first sat in a room with more than 10 Black people mm. in Sweden. That's how scattered the Black community in Sweden were when I was younger. And I okay. remember sitting there and looking around like there are no white people here and we're more than 10 people uh, all of us are black of course i've been in rooms like that in other countries but not in sweden so many of us has grown up maybe not alone as black people but with very few and when we've met as black people there's always been a mix of other people too that was so weird <laughs> like 35. So are you from Stockholm? No, I'm from Uppsala. It's north of Stockholm. It's okay. an old university city or town. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of the oldest universities. Or I think it is the oldest university in Northern Europe. I'm not sure. Maybe someone will correct me now. One of them, at least. Okay. It was quite a lot of Black people in Uppsala when I grew up because of the university. A lot of exchange students and exchange researchers that were there. So a lot of us mixed race kids in Uppsala, fathers that came there to study. So it's quite a different demographic than in Stockholm, for instance, where the mixes come from a lot of different situations. It's definitely a social class-based difference that you can see. I saw mostly Black men because it was mostly Black men who were exchange students when I grew up. Yeah. And many of them went back to their countries of origin after a few years. Is that where your mother is from? Yes. So who was Anna as a child growing up? That's a difficult question. <laughs> what do you want to know? I like your dreams, your passions, <laughs> you know. I did gymnastics, mm. music. I went to this music school. I think I was very, what's the word? I took things quite seriously. 
from an early age. I was never the best, but I was good. A four out of five. That's pretty good. <laughs> but it was important for me to do good. Maybe too important. I wish that I had played around a little bit more. My older sister would probably say that I had plenty of time to play and just be a kid because she had to grow up much faster than me. But still, I wish I had played more. You said gymnastics and music. Music, yeah. But gymnastics, I think, took most of my time. And of course, hanging out with friends. I saw this documentary last night about gymnastics. So I guess that's why I'm thinking about it so much, the discipline. It was also where, where I had most of my friends and it meant a lot to me. But when I think back on it, I'm not sure if I think it's a good idea to put kids in an environment that's so strict and disciplined. Hmm. Did you have hopes of doing it professionally? No, I was never that good. And I knew that. So you mentioned about growing up in Uppsala and the men that came from different countries and with the children. When did you become aware of, I don't like to use that word, but being different? And the blackness, you mean? Yeah. I don't know. I think I've always known. I had the opportunity of when I started fourth grade, I had two other mixed black girls in my class, three out of, I don't know, 30 or something like that, which felt a lot. And we all had white Swedish mothers and African fathers, but from different African countries. So we talked about it and we joked a lot about people never being able to pronounce our last names and all that stuff. But we didn't talk about racism. We didn't know that that was what we experienced. Mm. And my mom, she always said that we were not better, but she tried to sort of lift up the blackness. I had the support from her, but I don't think she was really equipped to have important conversations about racism. But of course, she knew it happened and she experienced it herself. She was alone with three black kids. She got to hear a lot of things that I didn't know about until much later. Again, I was expected to know things that I didn't really know. I was expected to know a lot about hip hop, for instance. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I guess I have to start listening to it because people are asking me. Yeah, that's similar in America. The assumption that you are an expert and it's like, well, you didn't even ask me if I like whatever it is. <laughs> exactly. Or to think about generationally, I remember once when hip hop really got big and mainstream, I had someone I worked with say, oh, well, do your parents listen to it? And I said, well, of course not. It's not their generation. <laughs> but again, that thing of, you know, carry the thought all the way through before you ask the question. People assumed that I was adopted. Ah, okay. And that happened both with my own mother, but also when I was with friends and their families, people always assumed that I was adopted. Of course, when I was a kid, I don't know how many times people talked over my head because they didn't think that I understood Swedish. I just thought that they were a bit stupid, I think. 
it was annoying. It was really annoying, but I don't remember being sad about it. I think the first time when it became a problem and I was scared, it was not until the 90s when there was a financial crisis. And then we had this serial killer in Sweden that was called the Laser Man because he used a rifle with a laser. In Sweden? Yeah. And he targeted non-white people. That was the first time my mother was like, be careful when you go out. He operated in Stockholm and Uppsala. I said before, it was important for me when I was a teenager to say that I'm not an immigrant. And that was the first time I realized it doesn't really matter because if a racist killer sees me, he's not going to ask. It's how I look that makes me a target. And I think that's important for us collectively to say that more, because I know within the last year with the talk around what happened in the U.S. with George Floyd's murder and what conversations have sparked since then, I know my own experience with friends who are not Black and they're surprised that I experienced that uh, being stopped by police or being followed in a store or regardless of what country going to a nice museum and people staring at you, those types of things. And they're like, oh, well, you're such a quote unquote nice person. And it's like what you just said, (laughs) anybody who has that mindset, they don't stand and try to figure that out. No, 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 no. Also, the stress of thinking that you have to be an extra nice person in order to stay alive. That's also the privilege of being able to be rude or angry or whatever and not think of how that will affect how people see people of the same color as you. That's one of the privileges of whiteness. You can be just yourself and not be part of a group. Whereas a Black person, and I think especially Black men, being nice, being not threatening in any way. I mean, it's always been around, Mm. of course. But what I'm learning from the younger generation is that they're learning to say how they feel, not to talk about the actions, but to say, like you said, it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. Some days I just don't want to go to the store because I don't want to have to think about all those things Mm -hmm. that one has to think about. Yeah. And I mean, that circles back also to what I do for a living right now to actually explain these things to people that don't understand it. Like some of your employees might not be able to do the work because they're exhausted, because they have to meet people. Maybe, maybe, maybe the racism isn't within your organization, but probably it is too. But they also have to meet people outside of the organization and meet audiences, meet customers, meet any kind of person. I mean, everyone's stressed, right? (laughs) Everyone has a lot to do. But on top of that, also always have to contain yourself within this idea of being the non-threatening Black person or the nice immigrant or something like that. It is exhausting. Yeah, as a comedian, actress comedian in the States, uh, Phoebe Robinson, I read her book a few years ago and she talked about, oh, wouldn't it be great to just go down to the corner store and get a thing of milk without having to think about, oh, I got to do my hair. I got to make sure I have this on, you know, because 
if I don't look a certain way, there's going to be these automatic assumptions about me. Yeah, this really um, confirms how important what you do for a living is important. Yeah, white translator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, to kind of shift topics a little bit, if it's okay to ask, how do you identify on the LGBTQ plus spectrum? <laughs> I would identify as bisexual, uh, and I have identified as bi, I don't know, since quite early uh, in my life. It's not been easy. It's not been easy to understand what it is and how it can look in practical senses and emotional and sexual and, uh, yeah. And I have worked quite a lot with my own internal biphobia i would say it's the straight side <laughs> that i have a problem with i don't want to call it a gay side on the straight side because that's reducing it a lot but i remember sitting in a sermon at pride stockholm pride it's an old big church in the middle of stockholm it's beautiful this rainbow sermon and the priest was like <laughs> Remember, you can love anyone and blah, blah, blah. And I was sitting there. Oh, no, I have to tell my friends that I met another man. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not gay enough. And I'm not even bi enough. So this is something that I still think about a lot. And who gets to define what you are. Mm -hmm. And also what actions make you something. Is it your feelings? Is it your, yeah, everything? Do you find, or is there a challenge around how you present people assuming automatically that you're straight or um, only attracted to men? I know for me, when I came out, you know, I just had very narrow uh, perceptions of what it meant to be a gay man. And that usually was a lot of what was on TV. I've always wondered that about being bisexual. It depends on which crowd I'm in. Some crowds assume that I'm straight. Some assume that I'm gay. Oh, no okay. one assumes that I'm bi. I mean, I have a lot of queer friends. So I think some crowds would just assume that I'm gay. I mean, in general, when I walk the street, I would guess people assume that I'm straight, but I'm not sure, but I would guess so. Okay. I mean, when I was a kid, I was much more of a tomboy than I'm now. <laughs> I've always been kind of fluid and mixy. I mean, we talked about it, about race, but it's like, yeah, I'm mixed race. I'm bisexual. I'm also this strange mix of, in social classes. I don't know. I'm not making it easy for me. <laughs> or I am, because I can also be in a lot of different crowds and, and feel quite comfortable. So Sounds like not allowing the uh, limitations from the outside world to affect who you are authentically. It does affect me. I mean, emotionally, it, it, it definitely has been times where I've, I've struggled with it. Not because of shame, but maybe because people want to put a label on me. How is the LGBTQ community in Stockholm or Sweden? 
I've read Sweden is very progressive and open-minded sooner than I think uh, a lot of us were in the U.S. around sexual orientation. This is a hard question for me because I've had a queer community for so long, so I don't really remember how it is to come out and seek it. (laughs) What I do know in Stockholm, at least, it has more to do with sort of uh, how the city works and how capitalism works. There's not a lot of places anymore. There's not a lot of clubs or cafes or stuff like that where queer people meet. A few years ago, it was much better, but it's been sort of pushed out from the city center, at least. If you ask someone younger who still goes to clubs and uh, (laughs) know the city nightlife in a better way, they might say something else, but I don't think so. I don't think it's a big problem for anyone to be out open in the streets today. Of course, there could be pushbacks, uh, especially now with right-wing parties gaining more power. Racism and homophobia goes hand in hand. But I do think that there's still quite a stable idea in Sweden. Yeah. Trans people have it harder. Uh, There has been a debate the last year that's really toxic around trans rights. So that's something that we need to push forward again. There's quite a lot of transphobic speech in media and politics right now. In Sweden? Yeah. Or maybe not politics, but yeah, in the media, people that have a strong voice in public. Mm-hmm. Also, all of these rights, political and societal rights, but also attitudes, we can never sort of just relax. We always have to be vigilant and understand that this is not something that's, oh, now we're all fine with this. We see pushbacks all the time. I know that Sweden has this reputation of being so open. It can change quickly. We're also a small country. So if the public opinion and politics shifts, it can go quite fast. Yeah, I wasn't aware of the challenges within the trans community. I wasn't aware that that was in Sweden on that level. Of course, because I don't know the language, so I'm missing a lot. Your thing of bringing up how we're losing um, our spaces, Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's connected to online dating. No, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, online dating, but at some point you want to meet somewhere, right? Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) So in Stockholm, at least, it's just capitalism. It's just that rents are getting higher and smaller venues cannot afford to stay. Yeah, it's the same coming from Los Angeles, West Hollywood. I know a lot of the popular, not just the bars, but eating establishments are gone. Mm. And that's a loss of culture, I think. It is. And I think also, not all, but... A lot of the queer places, bars and restaurants and cafes also have had this idea of a social network being not too pricey so people can go there and all of these things that actually builds communities. Yeah, the city is not that interested in that. 
It's a lot to think about. (laughs) (laughs) Before I let you get back to your afternoon, I just had a couple last questions connected to travel. Mm -hmm. When you were very young, you were in Nigeria. Have you been back as an adult? Yes, I was there um, four years ago. No, three years ago. And I met my dad. Okay. What part of Nigeria is he from? He's Yoruba from uh, Ibadan or Ofa, actually. Mm. But now the family sort of spread out in different parts of the country. I was mostly in Abuja. Okay, that's the capital, is it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm so happy I went and I want to go back there someday. I heard this lecture on polyphony, different sounds at the same time. And this is actually something that you can train your brain into distinguish different sounds at the same time. Mm -hmm. But in Sweden, as you know, we're quite slow and quiet. Which I Uh, love. (laughs) Yeah. So someone talks and the other ones are listening and then someone else talks. And of course, people can interrupt each other and stuff like that. But when I was visiting my, my family in Nigeria, everyone spoke at the same time. I realized that they could understand all of these conversations at the same time. It's like their brains were leveled up. (laughs) I like that term. (laughs) Yeah. And I felt so slow. I was like, can you please speak one at a time? They were like, why? It's so much slower. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they understood everything and I didn't. So even though we spoke English, I felt that I was always a little bit behind. Well, coming from the uh, perspective of introversion, yeah, I can relate. My immediate family, we're all introverts, but going to visit extended family, it's like with space, going to see certain family members and, oh, come on. It's like, no, I'm going to stay back. I'm tired. No, no, come on. It's like, oh, okay. (laughs) I was hoping the three hours you were gone, I could like recharge. (laughs) Yeah. And even though you love them, you get tired. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I'm really, really glad that I went. It was so important for me. Have you lived in other countries? No, I have not. I have traveled quite a lot. I like to go back to places. I'm not an adventurer. I want to go back and feel at home. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And the place I go back to most often is Greece. And I know you speak English and Swedish. Do you speak other languages? No. I mean, I understand a little bit of Spanish and French, but I would not say that I speak it. If I read it, I would understand. Yeah. I mean, when I'm in Greece for a longer time, I understand some of it, but I cannot speak it. And I've tried. (laughs) It's one of the fascinating things for me as an American is my experience with Europe so far, how many countries you speak more than one language. I wish that was required in the States. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a lot of people speaking Swedish, so we have to. Mm, Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Danish and Norwegian, I understand Danish and Norwegian. I will say what little bit of Swedish I do know, I find that I can pick up some words in German, which I didn't expect. Yeah, it's the same language family. I really appreciate you coming on here and thank you so much. Thank you. It was nice talking to you.
Yeah, same here. Yeah, I look forward to when I'm able to return, uh, hopefully meeting up in person. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, before we close out, where can we find you online? Oh, well, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. It's just my name, Anna at Energy. Yeah, I also have a website uh, at energy.se. It's in Swedish, but yeah, I'm there. All right, cool. I'll make sure to add those links on the uh, description when this uploads. Great. See you. Take care and uh, have a good one. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time. <laughs>